This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. But we're going to open the Word of God together and continue in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it's been a bit of a grim book so far, let's admit it. And one of the powerful testimonies to the truth of the Bible and especially the Old Testament is that this is not the kind of heroic story any nation would choose to tell about itself, to celebrate their triumphs, to gloat in their superiority to those around them. The Old Testament makes depressing reading at times, and it's the story of Israel's failure and rebellion over and over again. And the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, which we have toiled through together over the past few months, have been the story of a corrupt and depraved priesthood, people who are idolatrous and forget God, and a king who began with such promise, King Saul, and with every opportunity for success, but who has chosen to turn away from God and rebel against him. A king who has some respect for religion, but no heart for God. And in chapter 15, Saul hears these terrible words of judgment from Samuel. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And thank God, halfway through the book, we now have a hinge, an upswing, and let's read chapter 16 together. Listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, no, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Ah, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, 
The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. This is the word of the Lord. And this word begins with the prophet Samuel in a funk. Samuel is in mourning. He's grieving deeply over Saul and the failure that he has become. Samuel is an old man. He should have been enjoying his retirement, his model train set, his grandchildren, leaving the kingdom in the capable hands of the ruler that the people had chosen. But Saul has been a grievous disappointment to God and to Samuel. Samuel has poured his life and his heart into Saul, and now he's been disappointed and heartbroken by his protege. Saul is an old man. He knows his days are going to be shortly coming to an end, and he had hoped to be gathered to his fathers to rest in his grave, knowing that God's people were in good hands. But God's people are not in good hands, and Samuel is deeply concerned for the people of God. He's grieving personally over Saul, his own personal disappointments. But what about the people of God? What is going to happen to them? And this kind of grief is appropriate to a point. God shares this grief, but time has passed, and God has kind of a rebuke for Samuel. Because even a prophet, even a man of God can be in danger of losing faith, of becoming so invested in the way that God was working in the past, he's no longer able to see how God might be working in the future. And Samuel is in danger of falling into a deep depression, of becoming cynical and embittered. And the Lord speaks up and comes to Samuel and asks him, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? from being king over Israel. Samuel, don't dwell on regrets. My plan is going. Don't get stuck in this old way of doing things. Do you really think, Samuel, prophet Samuel, man of God, do you really think that my plans will be frustrated by human failure? Do you think that somehow the future of my people is in the hands solely of King Saul. Samuel, time to stop feeling sorry for yourself. You need to get out of bed. You need to have a shower. You need to get dressed. And you need to get moving because you are going to participate 
in a fresh beginning for the people of God. You are being called out of retirement for a duty greater than anything you have done so far. Dust off your anointing horn, top it up with oil, and hit the road. Samuel is being sent to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have seen for myself a king, it says literally. I have seen for myself a king among his sons. A king for myself. This is the kind of king that I want for the people of Israel. I granted them the kind of king they were demanding. I gave them every opportunity, and it ended badly. We did it your way, Israel, but now we're going to do things my way, God's way. Saul was not a dead end, but he was a detour. God has a greater and a deeper plan for the people of Israel. And Samuel is sent to this character, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Jesse, in fact, is only three quarters Jewish. His father's name was Obed. His grandfather's name was Boaz. And his grandmother's name was Ruth the Moabites. And of course, you can read that wonderful story of how God called her and Boaz together in the book of Ruth. And if you do the math, you realize, working your way backwards, that Ruth and Boaz would have been roughly contemporaries of Samuel's mother, Hannah, and her father, his father, Elkanah. Same time period. They didn't know each other. They were living in different parts of Israel. But here is Hannah, this barren woman. God's given her a child, and she bursts out in song in chapter 2 of this book, describing how God lifts the lowly from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, and God is going to establish his future king. That future king is a long way over the horizon. But at the same time, Hannah is singing this prophetic song. In another corner of Israel, God is using this foreign woman to establish this king and create the dynasty that God has in mind. The ways of God are mysterious. And in her own lifetime, we only see a tiny glimpse of what God is up to. But over time, his purposes will ripen and come to pass in ways that we never expected. So Samuel is sent on his way. He has this fear that King Saul is going to kill him if he finds out that he's off to anoint his replacement. A dark note has entered the story. Saul didn't seem like this kind of guy earlier. In fact, he had a very attractive modesty, hiding among the baggage, not wanting to become the king. But now power has corrupted Saul. And he's turned into the kind of person who is ready to murder anyone who threatens his throne. So Samuel's provided a cover. Go to sacrifice. Go to Bethlehem, and I'm going to tell you the rest of what happens along the way, God tells him. The town council turns out they're shaking with fear, whether it's fear of this prophet of God or perhaps fear of Saul hearing about this. Whatever it is, Samuel says, don't worry, there's just going to be a sacrifice, and you're all invited, including Jesse and his sons. And Samuel must have been intensely curious to meet Jesse's boys. And when he's introduced to Eliab, the oldest, the tallest, the most handsome of the seven sons who are there at the feast, he thinks to himself, ah, yes, surely this one is the Lord's anointed. Eliab is every inch a king, 
tall, handsome, a commanding, dominating presence, just the kind of guy we want on the throne. And Samuel's all ready to uncork his oil and pour it all over Eliab's head. But before he can do that, God shuts him down and says, no, this is not the man. Don't look on his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. He's not my chosen one. Man, this is another rebuke of the prophet. And Samuel is making the same mistake he'd made 30 years or so ago earlier when he had anointed Saul and been impressed with Saul's huge stature, standing a head taller than everyone else. And somehow, despite the failure of Saul, Samuel's heart is still attracted towards these kind of leader-like, dominating men. The previous chapter was all about listening and the failure to listen. The key word in chapter 16 is seeing how God sees, how Samuel sees, how Saul sees. And even Samuel, the seer, is groping like a blind man, unable to perceive what God is up to. Look, God tells him in these famous words, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Human beings, all of us, are easily dazzled by what's on display. Very easily deceived. When we go to the store and we buy this kitchen gadget in, with all sorts of promises on the packaging and we go home and it snaps on the first day, we hire employees with impressive CVs. They turn out to be lazy, incompetent, and dishonest. We date very attractive people who turn out to be absolute nightmares. We're terrible at judging people because we all have a very limited point of view. All we can do is judge by appearances because we're unable to penetrate to the inner reality of anyone around us. But unlike us, God's point of view is not limited. Our point of view overlaps slightly with reality. God's viewpoint overlaps completely with reality. And God's all-seeing eyes see past appearances, see past social media posts, see past resumes, vehicles, makeup, right to the hearts of all of us. God sees the heart. He sees your inner being, the source of all your hopes and dreams, your fears and desires, your loves and your hates. The secret part of you that directs all of your actions is an open book to God, which is amazing because we're all kind of a closed book even to ourselves because our hearts deceive us and they convince us that we're doing things out of good motives when actually there are deeper cravings at work. We act in the moment in ways that surprise ourselves, but God knows you in a way you don't even know yourself, in a way you can never know yourself. And you're sitting here and I'm looking at all of your faces and we can turn and look at one another and we're all putting on a show to a certain extent, aren't we? But you're sitting here and you are known by God at this moment. No secrets from him. He sees and he knows. And he weighs you at your true worth. We misjudge people all the time. 
We over-exaggerate the worth of some. We underestimate the worth of others. And we find ourselves drawn to the wrong kind of people again and again, especially to leaders. And we give them power, believing their promises. And of course, inevitably, they disappoint us. But the God of the Bible is a God who does not operate according to human standards. He's not playing by that playbook. He ignores the rich, the talented, the powerful. God is attracted towards people who fly under the radar of human attention. And here's Jesse with his seven attractive commanding sons, and one after the other, to the surprise of Samuel, God says, nope, 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 keep on swiping, not this one, not this one, none of these seven sons. And here's Samuel the prophet, he knows he's heard from God, it couldn't have been clearer, he's come all the way to this village, to this family, are you sure this is it, Jesse? Are these absolutely all the sons that you have? Ah, Jesse remembers There is the runt of the family, the little guy, the small one. He wasn't invited. Uh, We didn't expect you to go through all seven of our sons and not see one fit for a king. Uh, So he's way back in the fields, and he's watching over the sheep. This is a highly symbolic image, the shepherd boy. You might remember that when we first meet Saul in this book, Saul is seeking some lost donkeys. And Saul is presented as a bit of an incompetent animal herder, which bodes ill for his future kingship. And by contrast, we have this boy out in the fields faithfully watching over the sheep. He's not going to change his occupation. He's just going to get a different flock. And dinner is put on hold. The roast meat is held to the side until the boy arrives. And finally, he comes in. He's grubby. He stinks like animals. What's going on here? And his appearance is quite impressive. He's glowing with health, fine appearance, handsome features. This is a good-looking kid. And it kind of tempers what we said a few moments ago about God not looking at outward appearances. We can't over-spiritualize this as though God only loves ugly people. Thank the Lord that's not true. Even the good-looking among us can be loved by God. God does not judge either way by outward appearance. And we can't make the mistake of thinking God prefers poor, the helpless, the clumsy over the others. It's just not how God decides. But what we see in the case of David is a young man who has complete harmony between what he is on the inside and who he presents on the outside. There's no hypocrisy. There's no hypocrisy. There's no deception. He's not acting for anyone. His inner heart is reflected in his outer attractiveness. And as this boy walks into the room, the word of the Lord finally comes to the prophet. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And he takes his large animal horn filled with olive oil and he pours it over the head of this boy and it soaks into his hair and drips down onto his work clothes because this boy has been chosen and set aside by God for a great task and a great office. And then we're told in verse verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully. It rushed upon David from this day 
forward. And you might notice how the author, the narrator, has very carefully kept the name of this boy back until this moment. This is the first time David's name is mentioned in this book. And I'm sure he did this deliberately to give David a strong association with the Spirit of God. Now, in the Old Testament, we come across other people who are filled or anointed with the, with the Spirit for a special task. It's not for all of God's people. It's for kings and prophets and those who have a special calling from God. And Samson and Saul also have this experience multiple times of the Holy Spirit rushing powerfully upon them. But what's different with David is this. The Spirit of the Lord comes from him from that day forward. Not an occasional experience that David has. He has a permanent possession of the Spirit. Now, what we would have every right to expect is that Saul kills over from a heart attack and David goes seamlessly to the throne. He's been anointed, after all. He's the king God wants. Saul has been rejected. But this does not happen. And it's not going to happen for another 10 or 15 years. In fact, David does not become king of Israel until the first chapters of 2 Samuel. We still have half the book where David is waiting to get to the throne. It's this two-stage process. A private anointing, just David and his family. And years later, the public acclamation as king. And in between, there is a long gap where David must wait on God. The very thing impatient Saul was unable to do, even for a few days, David now must do for years. He must wait on God. He must resist the temptation to seize the kingdom when it's offered to him. And through great danger and trial, he must trust that God is going to give David the kingship in his own time. But in the meantime, David is anointed and he receives this rushing power of the Spirit. And it's Peter Lightheart who points out that in receiving the Spirit, David is getting a down payment on the kingdom. You don't have the crown and the throne yet, David, but I'm giving you the Spirit permanently. And if you have the Spirit, all of that is going to come to you. Well, what a day for this boy being brought into this feast, wondering what's going on. He's been anointed with oil. He has this strange experience with God. And he must be wondering, what now? What happens next? What, what do I need to do? How do we proceed here? So while David is waiting and wondering, we move on from David to Saul. In direct contrast to David, verse 13 powerful experience of the Spirit. Verse 14, the very next verse we're told, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. What a tragic statement over this fallen king. The only person in the Old Testament described as having the Spirit of God leaving him. Saul has abandoned God, and now God abandons him. And something else replaces the Spirit of the Lord, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, in Hebrew, evil, the word evil has a much wider range of meaning than it does in English. It can mean moral evil, but can also mean harm, harm and difficulty 
and pain. So it, it, it possibly could be an evil demon that God sent. It would be the only one in the Old Testament. It could be uh, an angel sent by God, an angel of judgment. It could be a psychological state that God induces in Saul's mind. Whatever the explanation, the narrator is at pains four times. He emphasizes this spirit was sent from God. It's more than, we need more than a medical and psychological explanations. This is a judgment from God. And Saul is experiencing depression and paranoia and dread and confusion. And that's all coming as a judgment and discipline from God. Saul doesn't seem to know what's happening, but his attendants do. The men in the court, they diagnose the problem. Yep, this is a spirit from God. And here's the solution. You need to find someone who can play a musical instrument, the lyre, this little portable harp, to soothe your soul, to bring relief. And perhaps you will have some, some freedom from this spirit. And Saul agrees, yep, get me this guy. And by happy coincidence, one of the servants knows exactly the person to do the job. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre, the servant volunteers. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. We don't know the name of the servant, but he was a very perceptive man, and this all sounds very good to Saul. Perhaps in Saul's feeling of estrangement and abandonment from God, someone who does have the ear of God is just the kind of person he does want at court to give him favor. And so he sends for David. And what is so obvious, the narrator doesn't even need to tell us, is that the sovereign hand of God is behind all of this. And the irony, of course, is that paranoid, murderous Saul is unwittingly inviting his own replacement to court. And Saul, in fact, cannot help feeling kindness and favor towards David. And so David begins his career in loyal service to King Saul. He doesn't come to court plotting and scheming, whispering behind curtains, plotting plotting some kind of assassination. He doesn't use his musical giftings to increase his power over Saul, perhaps to even increase his torment and fear. David is there to serve. He's there to bless the king. He's there in complete dependence on God because David knows the Lord is with me. I don't need to force this. I don't need to make something happen. In God's time, God will open the way. You know, some texts in the Old Testament are very difficult to connect to Christ. And some texts in this book, to be honest, I have chewed my pencil for a long time trying to find that line that goes to Jesus. But here in 1 Samuel 16, we have a story of God's chosen Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for anointed. God's chosen Messiah from Bethlehem who drives out evil spirits and blesses his enemies. Christ is all over this chapter because David, of all the great men in the Old Testament, is the greatest prototype of kingship and therefore of Jesus in the Old Testament. When we read about King Saul... We go to Christ by saying, Jesus is not like that. He's the opposite of King Saul. That was a bad king. Let me show you a good king. But with David, we say, Christ is like that, 
but even greater. This is a good king. Let me show you the best of kings. And time would fail us to explore all the different ways that David foreshadows Jesus in this chapter. But let me emphasize a couple that are important. The first is that Jesus is the king that God chooses. He's not the choice of the people. He's not voted into office. He doesn't put himself forward. He's chosen by God. Jesus is not the king we wanted. And Israel welcomes the Messiah initially, but when they realize he's not conforming to our expectations of kingship, they say, crucify him, away with him. He's not the king we wanted, but he is the king that we needed. God knows far better than his people the kind of king, the kind of leader, and the kind of savior they desperately need. And the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone in God's plan. And secondly, Jesus, the Messiah, receives the Holy Spirit without measure and without duration, permanently. Even David, if you go on in 2 Samuel, falls grievously short of the ideal for kingship. David, too, is a disappointment. And he sins with Bathsheba. He murders her husband. And in his repentant prayer in Psalm 51, you remember he prays, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But that is not a prayer King Jesus ever needs to pray. Jesus is the king after God's own heart, the perfect king for God and the king for us. Samuel was grieving at the beginning of this chapter because he knew this isn't just about Saul. The people's fortunes are linked to the king's fortunes for good or for evil. And when you believed in Christ and when you were baptized in his name, you were fused to him. Your past became his past. His future becomes your future. We're linked. We're coupled together with him. See, it is a frightening thing for God to look into our hearts and know us because we would fully expect, if we have the slightest bit of self-knowledge, that we too would be rejected and passed over. But thank God that's not how God judges us because he looks into the heart of the true king and he sees perfect goodness, perfect faithfulness, and perfect love. And we are included in Christ. His name is on our foreheads. We belong to him. And his future becomes our future. And of course, we receive this by faith because it's against all human appearances. And we find ourselves like David and like Jesus in this in-between place, this long, uncomfortable gap where we're waiting for the kingdom. In temptation and danger, we're waiting for the crown. And God has given us his spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of our future inheritance, but we're walking down a long and dangerous road. A road we'll see in David's life over the next 14 chapters. But it's a road that not only David has walked before us, David's greater son has walked before us and opened it to our own feet. 
The most important fact about you today is not your appearance, your achievements, or even the state of your own heart. The most important fact about you is that like David, if you believe in Jesus, we can say the Lord is with him. The Lord is with her. And if the Lord is with us, all things will be well. And we too will sit on our thrones and we too will wear our crowns with Jesus. Let's pray and ask God for grace to wait for this future that is secure in Christ. God, we come before you in this awkward, difficult, in-between period where we have received the Spirit, we've believed on you, we've been given these great promises, and yet the reality we live day by day argues against kingship, argues against receiving our inheritance. And Lord, we must live by faith, but we are so weak, so easily tempted and led astray. Lord, you have given us your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, and you will not take him from us. Help us to keep in step with that spirit, waiting on your timing, trusting in you, loving and blessing those around us, and living a life that brings glory to your name as we wait on you and the coming of your anointed one. In the name of Jesus, the true king, we pray. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.